Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and a short feature series, Remembering John Paul Jr., which focuses on the late race car driver's career in sports cars. Known as one of the most natural talents in the sport, Jr. became a champion in the International Motorsports Association's fearsome GTP class, won many of the biggest endurance races, and added a famous IndyCar victory to his growing reputation before his father's drug trafficking business ensnared the two in 1986. With his career halted during the 30 months he spent in prison, compounded by a refusal to testify against his father, John Paul Sr., the Indiana native returned to racing in 1989 and continued driving until the early 2000s. Altogether, the vast majority of Jr.'s exploits in racing came in sports cars, and I've assembled eight brief episodes with his friends, co-drivers, team owners, and an IMSA official to share their insights and appreciations for all that made John Paul Jr. such a beloved figure inside the sport. And in some of the interviews, our guests speak to the latter years of Junior's life, where he fought and ultimately succumbed to the neurological disorder Huntington's disease. Junior's close friend, author Sylvia Wilkinson, wrote a book titled 50-50 about his life and career before and after Huntington's impact. And while the book is sold in many places, you'd like to support his legacy, a purchase directly from Sylvia through the email address johnmortonracing@att.net. We'll send some of the proceeds to UCLA for ongoing research to combat the disease. So let's get going with the kindly Canadian Bill Adam, who followed John Morton at Conti Racing, competing with Junior in 1985 and another March Buick, all brought to you in this episode by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Bill, when did you meet John Paul Jr., and was it before the two of you strapped into that nuclear explosive device known as a Conti Racing March Buick V6 Turbo 9 trillion horsepower. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it, that's true. Yeah, I actually met John back in uh, 1980 when which is my first year driving an IMSA with Group 44 and uh, we ran the TR8 that year. I, I don't recall exactly how I met John, but it's, he was one of these people that I just instantly liked. He had very low-key charm that we're all aware of and, and just a soft, gentle smile. And he was just such a, a nice personality that I instantly liked him. And that's something that he is known for and renowned for, just being this kind, gentle mercenary <laughs> the nicest sweetest guy in the world and then you strap him into a race car and it's not as if he became mean or, or drove in any kind of underhanded way it's just whatever the sweetest guy in the world who you knew outside the car transformed put on the proverbial superman's cape inside the car when did you get a feel for that dual personality of his well i i got certainly a better appreciation in, in the 1985 season that you alluded to in the uh, the conti march buick that we ran that year which i think was called an 85g yep was without question, absolutely without question, the worst racing car that either of us had ever driven or have driven since that day. And it was funny, a couple of years ago, I happened to see John someplace and we were sitting down having a Coke together, Diet Coke together. And uh, he said, God, you know what, Bill, I had a chance to drive that the old Conti car. Somebody bought it and restored it. And I can't believe how brave I was. <laughs> and I thought... <laughs> What a what a wonderful telling statement because the car did absolutely everything wrong 
I mean, from 84 to 85, you'd think they would take what had been a really good chassis in the 84 March and just evolutionize it, do a few improvements, a little touch up here, there, and make an even better car. Well, in somebody's infinite wisdom, they got a completely different designer for the 85. One day in, in mid-Ohio, Phil Cotty had tried all kinds of different people to solve the problems of this car being so bad. And Gordon Kopak, the McLaren name, yes. was sitting on this little stool by the front suspension, staring at it in the garage. And he was just gently shaking his head back and forth. And I, I walked over and I was kidding. And I said, is it really that bad? And he looked up at me and saw that, yeah, I was one of the drivers. And he said, my 15-year-old grandson could do a better job. Jeez. It was a car that, I'm not kidding, it at 100 miles an hour, it had enormous front-end lift. And dumb things like at the base of the windshield, they put a NACADUC in for uh, airflow into the cockpit, which was great. It, it's always nice to have added airflow in the cockpit, except it had a front-mounted radiator with the venting coming up and off the top of the nose right in front of the NACADUCT. So we had this hot air dryer blowing at us all the time. It was dreadful. But that year, running it with John, when we started testing it at Willow Springs in California, he would be typical John, just almost moving slowly and, and hardly speaking out of his shyness, not not standoffishness, but just, just his shy personality. And then get in the car and instantly be blisteringly fast. I thought, God, you are blessed with something special. And then he would get out of the car and switch back into this soft, gentle personality. And you have this vehicle where I wonder if there's any tales to tell throughout this 85 season where if you only look at the qualifying record for the GTP class in 1985 yeah. and never the race results you'd be led to believe <laughs> this was the all-time greatest gtp car ever made world beater can't be touched you know i'm exaggerating a little bit but if it's yeah. not on pole it's second or third unless there's some issue uh but if you look at its raw speed not its ability to yes. finish races because let's just say it was good in the brief maximum attack performance mode not so much the actually finishing an endurance race mode this thing was clearly bill a fearsome thing to wield can you share some insights about that because i know for you or when uh john paul jr is in the car man there was one session each weekend where it was pure electricity it was i mean we we had so much fun with the car for brief periods of time most of the time it was terrifying because you knew it was going to break. It was a case of, well, what's going to break this week? And the chassis was the weak link. The turbo V6 Buick engine that had been built and prepared by McLaren Engineering, it was brilliant. I remember one time testing with um, the, the two guys from McLaren, old Formula Atlantic drivers, um, Tom Clauser yes. and Wiley McCoy, wow. who was the other guy. Wow. They they were the engine builders for McLaren. And we were testing this thing. Uh, oh, where, I don't even, doesn't matter where we were. I think we're at Daytona. And you would 
put it in a gear and it would pull a red line. I put it in the next gear and it would pull a red line. It was just like, my God, this thing is limitless. And I came in at one point and I asked Tom, he kind of kneeled down beside the door that I had opened. And I said, the horsepower in this thing is unbelievable. How much have we got? And he said, is it enough? And I said, yes, it's enough. For the first time and only time in my life, I said, yes, it's enough. And he said, that's fine. And he walked away and they wouldn't tell us. And in the press kits, I think it said that they were 850 horsepower. Well, it might have been 850 on idle. But when you got the thing running, they later on admitted that it was something north of 1,150 horses. And when we ran more boost, it was over 1,200. That showed up at Watkins Glen that year, which was uh, that was such a frightening track to drive in that car with the front end lift and everything else. In qualifying, most of the 962s had been running 183 to 185 range, depending on how much aerodynamic drag the cars had on and who was being really brave. A European driver, one of the European superstars in a 962 went through the speed trap suddenly at 189. It was like, wow. And I took the march out to qualify. And oh, we were running that same weekend with Indy cars. And the Indy cars were going through the speed traps about 199. They were 10 miles an hour faster than the P cars. When I went out to qualify, I went through the speed traps at 204. Now, having said that, carrying all that speed, I was still sitting something like fourth on the grid because the car didn't want to slow down. It didn't want to turn. And maybe John could have could have put the thing on the pole, but it was certainly beyond me. That's amazing. And that's the thing that I'd love to close on, Bill, is the two of you as teammates, this car that uh, it was pretty much like pulling the pin on a hand grenade when the green flag waved. <laughs> you was. didn't know when it was going to blow, but you, you weren't. Pl- How's this? If you were the second driver in the rotation, you had one foot into the rental car to get to the airport. Not sure if you're ever going to get actually get in, but you share any just tales and memories of racing that year with John Paul Jr. And I know I'm overstating something, but in one of the most brutal GTP cars ever made, that made you fight and work for every bit of achievement you could get. Yeah, we really did have to fight uh, every corner, every lap. One of the great redeeming features, again, comes back to that uh, the Buick engine, was that we could kind of work with the car through the corner, and as soon as you were getting into a straight line, it didn't matter who you were following. You were going to go around them. You could just drive past them, and that could be Al Holbert and the Lowenbach car. It, it just didn't matter. You had so much horsepower. We had the ability that even with those huge tires that we were running back in those days, running the car at Riverside, California that year, I remember coming out of that final long corner. Uh, it used to be a, like a long right-hander leading onto the, the, the straight. And it was third gear in the car, and you had to feather the car coming off the corner because if you got under power too early, even third gear at, I don't know what the speed would be, Marshall, maybe 110 or 120 miles an hour, you'd light the back tires. You would Jeez. completely get wheel spin if you just snapped the throttle hard down at that speed. But John and I, we had a fun season. I, I loved being with him, partly out of his generosity in a car, which not every driver has. One of my longtime pals, Hans Stuck, Hans is the most selfish driver in the world that he wants every practice lap, every qualifying lap. And we did one race one year at Watkins Glen where I literally had not sat in the car prior to my first lap 
and green flag racing. Jeez. And Hans came into pits and, okay, Ben, yeah, you'll take over. And that was my first lap on the track. But John, if you needed another 20 minutes in a 25-minute session, no problem. Because I think he was comfortable knowing that he had this wonderful God-given gift of being able to instantly adapt and instantly be blindingly fast. And we we just had such a fun year because of his low-key personality. We had breakfasts and dinners together, and I, I, I had nothing but good things to say about John, and I have nothing but good memories. He was uh, gifted. He was very quick in the car. And I, I forgot one thing I was, was going to mention about the Buick engines is that they were virtually indestructible. We've been told early on, keep it under 8,000 RPM and you, you'll go forever. And only once John did to shift at Riverside and I think he buzzed it to 8300 and we broke a broke a valve or a valve spring. It wasn't a major destruction of the engine. Never had an engine problem the entire season. We never had a motor problem. And knowing that, it was one of these things that it was a challenge for us because we both, of course, wanted to do well for Phil Conti, our boss. He was just such a nice man. And we couldn't. We kind of, as you alluded to, we knew the car was going to break. And I think out of 17 races or 18 races that we ran that year, we only finished one, and that was Pocono. Yeah. So it, it got to be, you'd look at each other, little smile, put up your shoulders, go, okay, next week we're going to try again. I really was grateful for the 1985 season, being able to spend so much time with him. And he was maybe unique in that normally when somebody is that quick, has such a, a gift, they tend to be selfish and a little self-centered, which was something John never, ever was. He always had both feet firmly on the ground and he had that wonderful sense of humility and a humble attitude with everybody. I just, I really, really liked and respected John. Thanks once again for listening to Remembering John Paul Jr. Thanks as well to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com for supporting all we do. If this is your first time listening, you might pay a visit to MarshallPruittPodcast.com. We have more than 1,000 episodes awaiting your perusal, plus a lovely little subscribe page where you might follow along with all the new content we generate.